before you again to bring you the word. Our scripture passage this morning is from Malachi chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1104 in the church Bibles. We'll be reading the whole chapter from Malachi chapter 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now, entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us, while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, Oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, who has in his flock a male, and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, as we come to you this morning, 
May you open our hearts and our minds. May we be receptive uh, to your word, to what you have here. Uh, Give me your spirit. May I speak uh, your truth. And may we all learn from it and be edified by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we will be looking at the book of Malachi, specifically chapter 1. And I hope this is the first sermon in a series in the book of Malachi. So Malachi is a transitional book coming at the end of the Old Testament. It both reflects back to the Old Testament and looks forward to the New Testament. You can see that even in chapter 1. We are told to look back to Esau and Jacob, one of the patriarchs, in verse 2 while at the same time anticipating the work of Christ, bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, in verse 11. Its transitional nature makes it fit very well between the two series that Pastor Nathan is currently doing. Malachi talks about temple worship in the rebuilt temple, which replaces the temple of Solomon that we are learning about in 1 Kings. And there are references to the coming Messiah and the work that he will do as we are learning about in Luke. Before we start our study of chapter 1, let's look back at the setting of the book of Malachi. So Malachi prophesied during the post-exilic period of Israel, which is, I would say, one of the less well-known time periods of biblical history. A lot of that has to do with how few of the biblical books cover this time period. Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is why we had the reading from the book of Nehemiah. God promised to bring the people back to the promised land after their 70 years of exile, and he kept his promise. My family and I have been reading a devotional book that takes you through the Bible, and we have just finished with Jeremiah and Zedekiah and the destruction of Jerusalem. In reading about this time period, I am often struck by the mercy that God continually showed to his people. At the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you have this downward spiral of a good king and then a few horrible kings. As you read about the bad kings, you get the promise of God that the judgment will come soon. And it seems like it is about to happen. And then a good king comes along and God promises to delay the judgment though it is clear that judgment will not wait forever. For example, you get to the reign of Hezekiah, and it's clear the end is near. Although he was a good king, he disobeyed God by showing off the wealth of his kingdom to the Babylonian envoys, and God said that punishment was coming soon, and that not him, but some of his sons or descendants would be carried away to Babylon. It was said of Hezekiah, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So then you have Manasseh, one of the worst kings and one of the longest reigns, who was finally carried away by the Assyrians. And there he finally repented of his sins and turns to God. I believe he's the only king to end his reign in a better place spiritually than when he started, but only at the very end of life did he make these reforms. You have his son Amon, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, reigned for two years, 
before being killed by his servants. And then a good king, Josiah, who restored the true worship of God, tore down the high places and the altars, fixed the temple, and yet God did not forget the judgment that was coming. Josiah ended his life by dying in battle, a battle that he should not have been fighting in, that he did not ask God about. And Josiah was the last good king. It was followed by Jehoahaz. We don't know if he was a good or bad king because he only reigned three months and then was deposed and taken to Egypt. And then Jehoiakim, who did evil, reigned 11 years and was carried to Babylon. Jehoiachin, who did evil, reigned three months and then was carried to Babylon. And then we have Zedekiah, who reigned for 11 years and did evil, rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, and finally, at the end of his reign, Jerusalem was destroyed and the people carried off to Babylon. Here is what the end of Second Chronicles says about the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. The book of Jeremiah records even more of the specific sins of the people and the ways that they turned against God. Many of the difficulties that Jeremiah himself faced were a result of either the direct persecution of Zedekiah or the officials under him. In talking about how bad these kings were, I'm not saying that it was just them who were evil. They were the faces of the kingdom, and they evidenced the moral decay and idolatry of the people of Judah. You can see this in the way that Jeremiah was rejected, not just by the leaders, but by the people as well. Just like their leaders, they had given up following God and only served themselves. This is why it was necessary for God to punish them for their sin and to send them away from the land of promise into exile. After Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, God let the land rest for 70 years before the people were able to return. The first return led to the rebuilding of the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The second return, which is about 75 years later, involved many more people, and the work done by Ezra and Nehemiah led to the restoration of Jerusalem and the revival of the kingdom of Judah. This was a very important time period in the history of Judah. It never became fully in, a fully independent country again, but it at least regained the unity that it had enjoyed before the Babylonian captivity. The temple was rebuilt, the priesthood was restored, and they were trying to worship God the way that he was supposed to be worshipped. As for the prophet Malachi himself, we know very little about him. Most of the other minor prophets give us more information about the writer, but for Malachi, we have to be content with just his name. We read the passage from Nehemiah earlier to help provide some of the background for Malachi. There is no specific date given for him, but there are a lot of clues that help us to know that the prophecies recorded in Malachi were some of the last things to happen in the Old Testament. We know that the temple was rebuilt because of the references in Malachi to a completed temple. 
which means that he was after the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And Malachi gives us a clue when he says that they have a governor over them, which means that it takes place before the death of Nehemiah, as there was no governor after him. Though we don't know the exact time, we know that it was probably around the time of Nehemiah. And in comparing the two Old Testament passages we have read this morning, you can see the relationship and how they are addressing many of the same problems. In, in my imagination, I think it would be really fitting for, it to have come, for Malachi to have come right before the covenant that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm sure you can picture it. The prophet Malachi sees the sin and corruption affecting the life of the restored covenant community in Jerusalem. He is given the prophecy by God and presents it to the people to convict them of their sin. They see how they have been sinning against God and make a covenant to follow his ways, which leads to their turning from sin and creating a community truly devoted to his law. Maybe this prophecy was given then, or maybe it was earlier or later, but one thing is clear. It didn't stick. If you flip a few chapters later in Nehemiah, you see that he had to return to Babylon, and then when he came back to Jerusalem, he found sin all over the place. Many of the exact things that the people had covenanted about, they were now failing and sinning against God. Malachi's prophecy seemingly would have been relevant just about anywhere in the book of Nehemiah, as the people struggled to fully commit themselves to God. So now we finally come to the first chapter of Malachi and our first point, which is the love of God. Malachi's audience is mostly a people that grew up in foreign lands with foreign gods ruled by foreign kings. They knew their identity as the chosen people of God, but they are not used to worshiping God the way that he requires. They get to the promised land and are excited by the new temple that they have, but their poverty, oh, but their hearts are not in the right place. They look around at the destruction, at the poverty, at the masters that rule over them and think, are these the promises of God? This comes out as bitterness at what God has done and is doing. James Montgomery Boyce points to the seven how questions of Malachi, or as we have it here in the New King James, the in what way questions. God makes a statement about something, often something the people have done, and their response is, how have we done that? This is not a how of confusion, the people trying to understand how they can serve God better or what they have done wrong. It is a question of bitterness and contempt for God. They believe that God needs to come down to their level and explain himself for how he has managed things in this world. They don't see him as having authority or rights over themselves. God is equal with them. He is not doing a great job. This back-and-forth dialogue between God and his people is a major theme of this book. And we will see the different ways that God responds to these demeaning accusations leveled against him. The first instance of this is right at the beginning of our passage this morning in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, 
In what way have you loved us? Or as most translations put it, how have you loved us? I hope that none of you who have children have had them ask you this question. Mine certainly haven't. If I said to them, I love you, and they responded with, but how have you loved me? I wonder what I would say. Maybe something like this. Well, I take care of you and give you food and give you hugs, and I want the best for you. Sometimes I have to discipline you, but I hope that you know that I still love you, even when you do something wrong, and I always want you to obey. Whatever I would say, I would certainly feel pretty insecure about having to defend the fact that I love my children to them. But the answer that God gives is nothing like this. They ask him this question that is, that is at best impertinent, and his response is, 1,300 years ago, I made a decision to love you. They are demanding an answer, and God gives them one. He doesn't waste time with little details or even recent events. He could have said, well, I brought you back from Persia. You have food to eat, right? And I've been protecting you from enemies so far. God doesn't speak like that. He will give the answer in his own way. You are all good enough biblical scholars and attentive enough listeners. I'm sure that you saw the direct connection between Malachi 1 and the Romans passage that Bill read for us earlier. Paul quotes from Malachi 1 and expounds on it to show just how powerful the choice of God was. Let me read it for you again. In Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of, us, who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The people in Malachi know their history. They know that God is directly tying his love for them into the complete covenantal promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of him calling them to himself because of his own choice, not because of what they had done. God gives them this past proof of his love, but he also gives them a future proof of his love. He goes further than just his people Judah. He says, do you remember Jacob and Esau? Do you remember how I chose Jacob and rejected Esau? Do you remember the people of Edom descended from Esau? The ones who attacked my people Israel on their way from Egypt. My power extends to them too. 
I have not chosen them. They may want to rebuild their nation, just as you are doing, but they will not succeed. They are not my chosen people, and my love is not upon them. The fact of the matter is that God's power extends over Judah and Edom and all of the world. He controls the hearts and minds of men. He chooses who will come to him. And as Paul says, What right do you have, O created thing, to say to the one who made you, Why have you made me this way? He will decide who will come to him. And if Israel rejects him, he will bring in the Gentiles. It is a threat, but it is also a promise and an offer. God loves his people, and he wants them to come to him. Our next point is sacrifices to God. The first point was addressed to the people in general, but our second point, and the majority of the chapter, is devoted to the priests. The priests were despising God's name and defiling God's altar. You can see the next two how questions in verses 6 and 7 as they question God's rebuke of their dealings. It says here, To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. So what is the problem with the temple worship here? It's the same problem that we can see all throughout the Bible. And it's a problem that we still face today. We can look back at Genesis 4 to the story of Cain and Abel. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, and Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Or look to the story of King Saul and Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Saul ignored the command of God to destroy everything in a certain city and spared some of the best best animals ostensibly to use as a sacrifice to God. God rejected not only the sacrifice, but Saul as being king. Or from the New Testament, think of Ananias and Sapphira, who offered to God the money gained from the sale of their property, but rather than giving all of it, kept some of it back, and as a result, were struck dead. What do these have in common with each other and with our passage in Malachi? God had a requirement for how sacrifices were to be brought to him, and the people ignored that. We might say, does it really matter how exactly the people brought the sacrifices? They were trying to honor God, and they just messed up a little bit. What's so wrong about that? That is exactly the argument that Saul used. Is it really that big a deal? But his failure in offering the sacrifice revealed exactly what was in his heart. He did not really love God or care about the honor of God's name. He cared about himself and how he looked before the people. And if God's requirements had to be sacrificed to make himself look better, he was happy to do it. Malachi exposes the hearts of these priests. If they had to bring an offering to the governor, would they bring an animal that was blind or lame or sick? They used their position as the people of God not to say we have a duty to honor and serve God, but as a way to say, we are already God's people, 
so he doesn't care that much about how we serve him. We will do the bare minimum to keep the letter of the law, just enough to get by. But what does God say? He said it through the prophet Samuel to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. This was a new generation returned from exile in Babylon, but they still had the same heart failing that characterized the kings and people before the exile. They were putting their own desires before the worship of God. How easy is it for us too? Maybe it doesn't look as obvious because we aren't bringing physically deformed animals to Sunday worship. But are our hearts in the same place as were the hearts of the priests? Look at some of the words that are used to describe their attitudes. They don't give God honor. They despise his name. They say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. They sneer at the table of the Lord and say that it is too much effort to bring sacrifices. God talks about us in this passage when he says that he will bring in the Gentiles to offer the incense and pure offering that the Israelites were not bringing. May our offerings of worship and praise live up to that high calling. So this leads us to our third point, which is the honor of God. The Persian king Xerxes, who reigned shortly before the second return of the Jews, made the following proclamation. A great God is Ahura Mazda, who created this earth, who created man, who created peace for man, who made Xerxes king, one king of many, one lord of many. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of lands containing many men, king in this great earth far and wide, son of Darius the king, an Achaemenid, a Persian, so of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan seed. The people returning to Jerusalem would have been very familiar with this language, and they should have known that as great as Xerxes tried to make himself appear in his proclamations, God was far greater. He says of himself in verse 14, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So much more understated than Xerxes. But how much does he really need to say? He has no need to puff himself up with his words. It is the people who are at fault for not giving him the honor due to him. Let's look back at the uh, Nehemiah 10 passage that Bill read to us. Here we have a covenant that the people made with God to serve him according to the law of Moses. Let's look at at a few of the things that are included in this covenant. The people say that they will give money for the regular offerings in the temple. They made ordinances to bring the first fruits of their crops, the firstborn of their sons and of their animals, to bring their tithes and their offerings that the house of God is not neglected. These are some of the very issues that Malachi is addressing. The things that the people covenanted to do yet they quickly fell away from. By the time Nehemiah returned from his trip to Babylon, the Levites were out working in the fields because no one was giving them their due. 
Malachi shows how the priests did not honor God through bad sacrifices. The people were the ones bringing the sacrifices, but the priests were the ones responsible for making sure they were good and pure before offering them to God. The people honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So where does this leave all of us? How do we honor God today? The sacrificial system is no longer in place. Christ has come, and he is our sacrifice, perfectly fulfilling all that the blood of bulls and goats could not do. What still remains is our hearts and the worship that God requires of us. How do we come to worship on Sunday mornings? We can come to worship blind, our eyes overwhelmed by the views of sin and degeneracy that we have seen throughout the week. But why is that? Is it because we've had to work with broken people in a school or a hospital day in and day out? Or is it because those are the kind of movies and videos that we have allowed to entertain ourselves? And what is our response? Do we come to worship with our feeble sacrifice, sneering at the importance of serving God in purity? Or do we come to Jesus joyfully in worship as the one that can heal our blindness? We can come to worship lame and sick, our bodies wearied by struggle and sleeplessness. But why is that? Did we choose to sacrifice sleep for pleasure and entertainment, neglecting our duties in the world, unmindful of the importance of being alert, energetic, and enthusiastic in our worship of God? Or is it because of a thorn in the flesh that God has given to us, one that constantly disturbs our rest, threatens our peace, and makes getting up to do the smallest of chores a marathon? And what is our response? Do we come to worship with a heart of bitterness because of all the perceived failures of God that we think we have seen? Or do we come to worship knowing how physically impotent we are, but knowing that it is the place that we need to be so we can cry out with the blind beggar, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. God cares about our hearts. Other people may look at you and judge how much you love God by your physical appearance, but God doesn't. He knows why you struggle to worship, not just in church on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. He knows whether it's because of your own sin and laziness, my own sin and laziness, or because of the curse of the fall. He knows our abilities, and he will judge us not based on some arbitrary standard of looking good, but based on his perfect wisdom, his justice, and his mercy. I exhort you today not to be like the priests who despise the offerings of God, not to be like the people who made a covenant before God only to turn away from it as soon as it was convenient. I know many of you have physical struggles and sickness and family members who are suffering, and much of that will affect you and the way that you follow after God. But don't let sin creep into your weaknesses. Run to Christ and his promises to never leave you or forsake you. Be like Nehemiah and Malachi. Root out sin and corruption. 
expose it to the word of God, and trust in his promises. As it says here in verse 11, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord God, as we seek to serve you in our brokenness and our weakness, I pray that you would be the Lord of our lives, that we would serve you in humility and in love, that you would keep us from sin, from falling away from you, and that you would allow us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our closing hymn today is Lead On, O King Eternal. That's number 580 in your hymnal. Number 580.